Hello, everyone. I am Olga Sugievich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. I am pleased to welcome our guest today, Ian Bremer. Ian is the president and founder of Eurasia Group, the world's leading political risk research and consulting firm, and G0 Media. Ian brought the craft of political risk to financial markets, creating Wall Street's first global political risk index and establishing political risk as an academic discipline. Ian spends most of his time advising presidents of countries, companies, and investment firms, and this is his first time on our podcast. Ian, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what is the most memorable situation where you were asked for an opinion or advice? Oh, probably right before the uh, the war in Ukraine uh, by President Biden, uh, as uh, the United States was trying very hard to find a way to avoid what U.S. intelligence was making very clear was an imminent and unprecedented land war uh, into Ukraine. Putin, of course, lied directly and repeatedly both to Biden and to uh, many NATO allies that these were 130,000 troops uh, that were engaged in training exercises and they had no intention of invading. Uh, but the Americans uh, knew very clearly otherwise. There was a very real and imminent understanding uh, that if the Russians proceeded with that decision, that the costs both for Ukraine and more broadly were going to be immense. And so uh, there was really an effort to try to do anything possible to stop that from happening. And uh, on the one hand, of course, I mean, when you're, whenever you're in a situation like that, um, you are absolutely and 100% focused on doing everything you can to providing your best content, to trying to make a difference. And at the same time, you also know how hard it is. And, and I think what, one of the things that I appreciate from conversations like that, it's so easy to criticize actors from outside. Uh, it's, it's so easy to say, well, they should have done this, they should have done that, and why are they making these mistakes? And when, you, when you're really in an environment, in a room where you're dealing with the people that are making the decisions and you see the constraints, the constraints of information, the con constraints on how much one can actually do to make a difference. Uh, it gives you a sense of appreciation of how challenging these jobs really are, um, how little ideology plays into it. And it also, I just think it's, it's, both, it's both humbling, but also uh, challenging to put yourself in the shoes of other people, which you need to do. And when I say other people, I don't just mean American decision makers. I mean, Russian decision makers. I mean, allies, all of these sorts of things. Um, and the more the more you can remind yourself of that, uh, I think the better off you are. So let's continue with the theme of the most important events of 2022. Walk yep. us through some of the other events and their meaning in a broader context. Big things that we're paying attention to. Well, yeah. I mean, right now, of course, uh, midterm elections in the United States, the fact that uh, we increasingly don't have to worry uh, about the possibility that the U.S. election in 2024 could become a constitutional crisis. I think there was a small but real risk that you could actually have a broken election before the midterm elections. I think the results of those midterms make that really off the table. And that's a, that's a welcome thing. And that's because the, the people that were running for governor and secretary of state that were election deniers in the swing states all uh, lost uh, and lost by significant margins um, with one or two exceptions. Uh, that's a big deal. 
Um, so start with the United States just because it's the most powerful country in the world. And so if you take that risk off, it's important. Uh, zero COVID in China, of course, the fact that the Chinese are increasingly uh, trying to move away from what has been a, a debilitating economic impact for them for the last year. Uh, and uh, perhaps 2023 looks uh, a bit more normalized, but it's going to be hard for them to do. That's pretty significant. Uh, the demonstrations they saw just a week ago, pretty big deal. Uh, the fact that uh, there is an effort uh, to remove the Iranian theocracy that's been going on for well over two months right now, that of course almost clearly crushes any capacity to do a nuclear deal with the Iranians that the U.S. withdrew from unilaterally. Um, but since then, uh, stability in Iran has only taken a turn for the worse. You know, uh, the the uh, of course, the implications, you said geopolitical, and that's what I focus on, but the implications of inflation um, on supply chain disruptions globally, particularly on the developing world, uh, higher uh, levels of indebtedness, greater fiscal pressures from their populations to provide uh, for middle and working classes that feel really challenged in this environment. Um, and yet after two and a half, three years of pandemic, um, the ammunition that those governments have um, to respond to those challenges is much more limited than you'd like it to be. Um, that's a that's a really big concern as well. So, I mean, those are probably, those are a few of the things that I would say geopolitically are probably the most important that have played through over the course of the year. So let's level click into a couple of these. Let's talk about China. What else is happening in China? And also, how do you know what's true? How do you get information about the events on the ground? How do you know that this is not fake news? Um, where, where do you get that from? How do you form your opinion? It's that? hard. Um, I mean, you know, the fact is that uh, Chinese uh, data from the government, uh, there's a lot fewer data points publicly that are offered today than were before Xi Jinping became president. Uh, I mean, if you want, if you're an investor and you're thinking about investing in the second largest economy, the fact that it is increasingly hard to understand what's happening inside China uh, is a risk that you need to be paid for. Uh, and that's a that's a big problem. It's a growing problem. I don't see that changing. On the other hand, uh, the Chinese economy is an integrated economy. Uh, we know in part uh, how consumption is going in China because they are buying things with inputs from all over the world. And so, you know, and they're stockpiling from all over the world. And so that, that's, that can't be obscured. That's a real capital flow and goods flow. Um, there are a lot of Westerners that have been working on the ground in China, a lot fewer during the pandemic than were before. And yet still, you know, you do get a pretty good sense from those expats in for example, how China's zero COVID policy has and has not been implemented. And plus, despite all of the censorship, the fact is there are a lot of Chinese with smartphones uh, and there are a lot of Chinese that use those smartphones to communicate with each other. And that also is information that gets out. The Chinese government clearly was not prepared for um, the comparatively small demonstrations that you saw, but still in all major cities across the country uh, over the past weekend. Um, and, and yet most of that actually did make its way to the West and the Chinese government has had to respond to it. Um, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't underestimate the challenges of getting information from China, but it's not North Korea and a country of 1.4 billion people with that much interconnectivity globally is still a country that we have lots of ability to engage with and understand. 
Um, you coined the term G zero world. Can you define it for us? And what does it mean for the technology sector? A G zero world is for me, it's the opposite of a G seven or a G 20. In other words, this is G governments. And the implication was that when you bring a collection of governments together, they're able to somehow provide leadership response to global crises, create an active agenda, drive globalization, drive a system of governance where the 8 billion people on the world sort of understand what's going on. Because we all know that governments are have been for our lifetimes the dominant actors in terms of authority and power in the way most people live around the world. Um, they, they write the rules that we live by, they levy the taxes, and if we choose uh, to disobey or not comply, there will be penalties that are exacted upon us, whether or not we live in a democracy and authoritarian regime, even if we don't happen to agree with those rules. And that that is still a, a very different level of authority than exists um, from corporations, for example, or individuals or, or other groups. So a G0 world is saying that the uh, despite that reality of power and sovereignty, that there is an absence of global leadership, that the United States is no longer willing uh, to provide the sort of global leadership to act as the global policeman uh, or as the architect of global trade or as the cheerleader for global values that it had, for example, at the high watermark of, say, 1989 when the wall came down or 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. And yet, clearly, no other country or countries in the world are willing or capable to fill that gap not the Chinese, not others. So, I mean, basically what the G0 is telling you is that the United States and China are the most powerful countries in the world, but actually you have much less to worry about of a new Cold War, much more to worry about with the United States and China, both increasingly turning their priorities inward. The United States talking about insourcing, talking about a, a foreign, an America first foreign policy, or under Biden, a US foreign policy for the American middle class, or for China, focus on a dual circulation policy that prioritizes Chinese domestic supply chain and Chinese consumption. In other words, in a world of increasingly global challenges, the two most powerful countries in that world are increasingly inward focused. And, and that has a lot of implications for how we think about global outcomes, how we think about gaps um, in the transatlantic relationship or between North and South or West and South or how the majority of the billions of people on the planet actually live. The fact that we have for 50 years had an emerging global middle class that increasingly is starting to hollow out, is starting to shrink, that trends of increasing globalization are not unwinding, but the trajectory is flattening, that no one's driving that bus. Globalization itself is increasingly adrift. That's, that's what I mean when I talk about a G0 war. And what does it mean for tech more broadly and specifically for people investing in different technology sectors? Uh, if, for technology, it, it means that the G0 world really refers primarily to the physical world. It refers to a world of hard assets, of infrastructure, of nuclear weapons and aircraft carriers and drones 
It refers to a world of hard commodities, food and fuel, energy that you know moves across borders all over the world, and the physical people that manifest in that environment. When we talk about the digital world, the virtual world, increasingly we're talking about a world where governments do not actually exert anywhere close to the same level of power or influence, and they don't set the rules. That in the virtual world, in the digital world, uh, a relatively small number of technology companies actually exert sovereignty. They create the platforms. They decide what the rules are for us to operate on them. They decide who we will interact with, what information we will consume, largely driven by their business models, but nonetheless having an algorithmic impact on our economic decisions, on our social decisions, on our political beliefs. That and in when what ways I, is that good or bad? Well, it's certainly different. You know, in some ways it's good. Uh, I, I think it's very interesting that uh, going back to Russia, um, if, if it hadn't been for the technology companies, if it hadn't been for the fast action of Microsoft that was standing up the Ukrainian cloud and defending Ukraine against um, cyber attack from Russia and the fast action of Starlink uh, and Elon Musk to provide um, satellite access to the Ukrainian military to be able to communicate with the government and with their commanders. If it hadn't been for that, I think there's a good chance that Zelensky wouldn't still be in power. He might be dead. Um, and so literally we're talking about the independence of a country. And imagine how different the world would look if the Ukrainians had lost that war. And of course, in the first few weeks of the invasion, Olga, you'll remember most people in the West thought that Ukraine was going to lose, that the Russians were going to completely overrun Ukraine. Now, after that, as the Ukrainians were able to stand up and fight, there was a lot of support that was provided by NATO, by the United States, by the UK, by Poland, by governments. But the initial immediate response was from technology companies acting as sovereigns in that space. Now, I think that you and I would agree that that's a good thing, that we are thankful that an independent nation of 44 million people did not lose their independence from an illegal invasion from Russia because of the independent decisions made by two technology companies that are not in any way party to treaties that could have made very different decisions just on the basis of the shareholders, the CEOs, or what have you, right? So that, that's a good thing. On the other hand, um, I also see a world where a lot of these technology companies are doing fantastic damage to civil society, to democracy in the United States and around the world because they are indifferent to the political divisions, the tribalism, the fake news, that their very business models are addictive for, for us as citizens, for our children, um, in ways that clearly are dystopian, in ways that clearly undermine and rip the fabric of civil society in our nations. And, and they're not effectively regulated. The sovereignty of those organizations in the digital world is, is deeply damaging, perhaps more so than any other factor in the kind of representative democratic governance that we have grown up to enjoy or aspire to, 
uh, for our lifetime. So, I mean, like so many different aspects of advanced technologies, uh, there are very different implications uh, depending on who's making the decision and how it's being applied. And this is moving so quickly. It's having impact on society and the economy and security in such a transformative way that we can safely say that both are happening simultaneously with very little response from governments around the world, certainly from the United States. So as we see the impact of the technology sector growing and and influence, um, obviously it's been on the agenda for many regulators in many countries. How would you rate the level of understanding of the technology underlying some of these companies and their business models by regulators in different countries? I mean, overall, very low uh, because these technology companies, uh, first of all, they can pay far higher rates uh, to employ the best talent than the governments can. They can't attract these people. So they're much more capable of understanding where they are and where they're going. They've got trade secrets that they aren't sharing. Frequently, they don't understand what the algorithms do themselves. I mean, deep learning that goes on on these platforms, um, you know, uh, the AI isn't telling you how it's finding these patterns, it's finding the patterns. And so, and, and the people in the companies aren't necessarily interested in understanding it as long as it's actually driving profit. So there's that challenge too. It's not just like a tobacco company or a food company or whatnot that knows what they're doing and just doesn't want to share it. In some cases, they literally don't know what's going on. So of course, the regulators aren't going to be any better. So there's that. And, and when you talk to a lot of the tech companies about you know, coming regulation, their view is, look, these governments are ponderous. Um, they have a hard time making decisions. And so maybe there will eventually be big lawsuits, but we're not going to waste our time dealing with that now because we don't know where they're going to be. Let's wait till we see where the lawsuits are. Then we'll get lawyered up and we'll respond to it at the time with the narrow areas that they're going to hit. Um, and that that's that makes sense. I mean, that's a logical way for them to respond. I would I would argue that the Europeans, of course, are the most knowledgeable and effective. And here I mean the EU specifically. I mean Magreth Vestager and and her team specifically, in part because the Europeans don't have the tech companies, um, so they're able to do a better job of attracting local talent than uh, the US is. They're paying. Uh, their bureaucrats more. It's uh, frankly a job that Europeans aspire to in a way that you don't in the United States aspire to be a senior bureaucrat in the, say, Department of Commerce. It's just not seen to be as an attractive a job uh, as it would be to go work at Google, for example, um, or Amazon. Um, and, and also because that the Europeans actually have the European governance has more power. It's the largest common market. So it has more impact in what they decide and what they do than many other governments actually do. And I would say that they are more capable than either the Americans or the Chinese um, on that front, frankly. Uh, but that, again, compared to the tech companies, none of them are close. That's, that's basically what I would say. 
Now, being here in Silicon Valley, my view might be tainted by the people I'm exposed to, but it seems that a lot of the people working in these companies care very much about the impact and influence that the technology they're building has on the world. And it seems that they take a lot of interest in what is happening on the policy side as well. So why do you think there isn't more collaboration? Well, first of all, these are extremely high paid and very intense jobs. So even if you care a lot as a human being, it's not what you're being paid for and you're busy. Um, and, and of course, a lot of these people move around very quickly too. So the ability to really have impact on governance in these organizations in an environment that is so competitive, that is so fast moving, that is changing so quickly, the answer is it's very hard. It's also Silicon Valley. Now the US government has set up you know, the DOD has set up an office in Silicon Valley um, and they are engaged much more uh, in trying to understand and cooperate with, you know, big tech players. But that doesn't mean that that's, uh, you know, it, it's certainly not priority number one, number two or number three for most of these people. Also, keep in mind that saying that a lot of people care about governance is very different than saying a lot of these people believe in the U.S. government and what the U.S. government wants to do. Uh, there are a lot of people in these technology companies that have very serious concerns about U.S. government, very serious concerns about the DOD in specific or the CIA in specific, the military industrial complex, and that have historically been much more libertarian in orientation and have basically taken a view of keep these guys away. Um, and there's a very different model. I mean, you know, an, a company like Apple that has big exposure in China both in terms of manufacturing as well as, of course, target market, um, there's just going to be constraints in how far they can go to work with a country like the United States because they have to defend their market share, their business, where if you're a, a company that's more aligned with the United States, it's easier for to make that decision. In other words, Tesla and SpaceX, both owned by Elon Musk, you know, one is fundamentally going to be more cautious about working with the U.S. government. The other is basically a U.S. national champion. Most of their money comes from the Pentagon and NASA. Those are going to lead to very different decisions on the part of their workforces, even if both of their workforces are equally civic in orientation towards what kind of values and priorities they want. So I just think that, look, a lot of people ask, you know, how could so many Republicans become so venal? in supporting Trump, who isn't good for the outcomes of the Republican Party. And part of my answer is because he's there, right? I mean, if Trump had instead been a Democrat, and by the way, he used to be a Democrat, but if he had actually risen up in the Democratic Party, how many Democrats would have chosen to make short-term decisions for their own ambition and made arguments to themselves that they were doing it for the right purposes for the long term, because that allowed them to get the justices they wanted appointed and the policies that they knew were right. And that's why they were doing it. And over time, they make enough of those small decisions that they end up, you know, becoming something that they don't even recognize anymore. Well, that's not just a feature of politicians. That's also a feature of anyone in a job. And so I think it's very important for people to understand that no matter how good a person you may be, when you choose to put yourself in an environment, in an ecosystem, whether it's an ecosystem that focuses on making money 
or an ecosystem that focuses on making widgets or an ecosystem that focuses on taking orders and defending your country or an ecosystem that focuses on making laws and achieving power to do so. All of those things will ultimately, if you are not rigorously careful about who you are as a human being and continually pushing back against that ecosystem, the path of least resistance is gravitational. It will change who you are and align you with that thing. And if that thing is focused on something that isn't actually very human, you will become less human yourself. And that's precisely what I think happens every day in Silicon Valley, just as it does every day in Washington. And people in Silicon Valley that thinks it happens in Washington and not in Silicon Valley are fooling themselves or in Wall Street, are fooling themselves or in America's universities, are fooling themselves, right? Um, and that, that I think is one of the great disservices um, that, that has happened in a US society that is atomized, where the community and the family unit matter less. And instead, the first thing you ask somebody when you see them is, what do you do, right? You've become aligned with that and with how you're going to achieve in that specific environment. And that, that's, I think that becomes, that is a slippery slope to becoming dehumanized. So to wrap up the section on geopolitics, what is your most controversial opinion today? Controversial? That's interesting. It may be that the United States and China are not only not in a Cold War, but they're not heading for a Cold War. It, it, it's probably that the, the headline risk around politicizing that relationship is something that neither the American nor the Chinese leadership are actually interested in pursuing. Um, and the level of interdependence between the two countries is massive and far greater than the tensions that exist over things like Taiwan um, and technology, advanced dual-use technologies, and that still defines the relationship. It's certainly not sexy to say that, right? Um, and it doesn't imply any level of particular trust between the U.S. and the Chinese systems, and yet that is real and persists. I think that's uh, that's probably my most controversial. It's certainly the one that would be the most rejected by the American foreign policy establishment, for example. Well, the fewer conflicts, the better that is. Um, so what technology sectors are you spending most time on understanding or people at Eurasia group um, and and why? Well, I mean, AI, uh, absolutely. Uh, because um, the um, way that algorithms increasingly affect human behavior um, and, and uh, affects everything about it. Uh, I mean, the, the dramatic transformation, AI was going virtually nowhere for decades. And then in the last several years has just been completely explosive um, in uh, the information that we consume, uh, in the people we connect with and how we perceive the world. In other words, AI has become deeply political without us knowing it. And, and that companies, are using AI to do A-B testing, not on what makes for a better society, not on what even would make for more political stability and coherence, but rather specifically on what leads to more addiction. And I think that that is perhaps the most disturbing and destabilizing trend that exists in technology today. 
there are others. Um, I mean, I you know, focusing certainly on offensive cyber capabilities, uh, focusing certainly in some trends in biotechnology and genetic modifications for food, for example, uh, and for species protection, for example, for climate change, carbon capture technologies, fusion technologies. These are very important, fascinating, still early stage, but have the potential to scale. Uh, clearly, lethal autonomous drones, um, which from a uh, an insecurity perspective and the ability of non-government actors to really make a difference. I mean, just in the last 24 hours, we've seen the Ukrainians um, uh, being able to attack deep into Russian territory in a way that they couldn't have even six months ago. The potential of this to transform insecurity for major government actors um, is, is overwhelming. So all of those things I think are really interesting, but AI, broadly speaking, and general AI modeling and what it does to society is the issue I'm personally most interested in. So let's move to the world of media. What's your information diet? Well, first of all, I have a company with over 200 people um, who are analysts, they're content people. And I'm fundamentally a content person. Uh, you, as you know, I'm not the CEO of the firm. I spend my time actually trying to understand the world and present that, not to run the organization. And that, that's part of the reason that we've been successful. Um, and so uh, one of the first things I do is make sure that all of my analysts who are constantly engaged with each other as one organism, it's not a academic institution or think tank where they're working in silos, I need to make sure that I am getting the best of their insights um, and they're pushing back against me if I'm saying something or writing something that they don't fully agree with. Um, so that's that's a, that's the secret sauce, of course. I mean, having built that for 25 years, it's absolutely critical. Beyond that, um, it is um, a, uh, I mean, of course, you know, I read the FT and the Economist and, and you know, uh, the, the, big broadsheets and I have a bunch of independent journalists that I follow from around the world, you know, some of their substacks and some of their social feeds, that sort of thing that I will dip in over the course of a day, you know, spend half an hour, an hour a day, probably reading that kind of stuff. But the most important beyond our analysts are the global leaders that I have gotten to know and trust from all over the world. And when I say the global leaders, yes, I do advise heads of state, but those aren't the people that are going to give you the best information. It's not an individual president. It's rather the top strategists in all of those spaces. It's the people that are inside the governments that are really getting all of the inputs and trying to marshal them and make policy. And, and that's, that's absolutely indispensable. And those are, that's a network I've been building for 30 years now, since I started really, since I got my PhD. Um, in 1994, even before that, doing some field work. And that's one of these areas that no matter how smart you are, it takes time. Like you just can't build a network without doing this work around the world for years and years. And also doing that work with an analytic platform where if you're hiring the best analysts in the world on Southeast Asia or Brazil or whatever, and then you travel into those countries with those people and you're meeting their people, you're building that network. That's absolutely indispensable to doing the work I do. So, I mean, when people, some people, when they ask me, like, you don't run the company, there's literally no way I could do my job if I was involved in management. I, I mean, staying on top of global content in a way that is useful is, is more than a full-time job. I mean, it's a lifetime job. It's a lifetime job. 
And it's one that I happen to get most excited. But a lot of people also, you know, when you see people that are entrepreneurs or you see friends that are building their own organizations, which is always fun to do. I learn from people like that, but they'll always ask, what's the thing you're most excited about? And the funny thing is I'm not usually most excited about a big, shiny new project or a, a, a launch of a, of something we're doing or a new office. I mean, those things are all cool, but the thing I'm usually most excited about is something happening in the world, right? I mean, it's, it's trying to understand, it's my avocation, trying to understand like where things are going and, and connecting all of those dots, seeing those macro trends and shifts, the pattern recognition, and trying to understand how to respond to it. That That's an, an it, it's one of these things. The Japanese are very good at this. They're very good at finding a small niche and trying to truly master it over their entire lifetimes and just getting better and better and better. And this idea that you will continue to be engaged if not only you think that over time you can achieve mastery, but you keep learning, you keep learning. And I, I'm learning just as much now, probably much more than I was when I was a grad student because it's at a higher level, the stakes are higher and it's more complicated. There's more inputs. So and that's what keeps me engaged. I'm, I'm more engaged after 25 years than I was when I started it. And everyone in my firm can tell because that's what I do. I mean, the, right before I had this conversation with you, we were having a macro conversation about US-China policy with about 15 people in the firm with very different perspectives, all touching a different piece of the elephant, trying to understand where we're going. That's a hard thing to do. And it's no easier because I've spent 25 years doing it. You know, if you get to a point where you plateau, you've done the job, you've mastered the job, there's nothing new. We all know, you know, you're going to you're going to start punching the clock or you're going to look for something else. And that's that's the that's the opposite of me. I'm not a serial entrepreneur, I'm not looking to start a new company like this is the thing that I'm doing. And of the independent journalists and other thought leaders that you follow, give us examples of one most underrated and most overrated. You know, I would uh, I'd look at somebody like uh, Gregory Brew. I've been, you know, on Iran, for example, over the course of the last, he's got like all 10,000 followers on Twitter. And uh, I think he's a prophet Yale. And I, I have found his work on Iran incredibly insightful, thoughtful, like really, really impressive. And he's vir virtually unknown uh, outside of a small group of Iran watchers. You know, and, and there are people like that on every issue around the world, people that they're not they don't know how to communicate very well, necessarily. They're not interested really in marketing themselves. Uh, there's way too much noise out there for them to really get picked up. And they're too busy to want to spend a lot of time like on CNN or Fox or whatever their ideological preference happens to be. But they're awesome. And you need to spend time finding those people and reading those people because those people really matter. I mean, overrated. I mean, I'll tell you, Olga. I um, I, I'm not, I'm not a mean person. I, I, I think of myself as a humane person, as a not, not necessarily nice, because nice is kind of milk toast, but kind, um, and friendly, mischievous, you know, but, but not, not mean. And so the idea, like going after someone who's overrated. There are plenty of people that get more attention than they probably should because they spend too much time like chasing the bobble as opposed to like doing the work. And, and what I can say is I, there are colleagues of mine and friends of mine 
that over the last 20, 30 years have had periods of their lives where they have gotten overrated. And the ones that I admire the most are the ones that recognize that stop and say, I got to go back and do the work and have been able to like actually like get back to the content. That balance is really important. But you and I both know plenty of people that um, are doing work that they get far too much attention for and are, are, are not actually worth it. And my view is don't need to point it out. Just don't follow them. Don't, don't, don't promote their work. That's sufficient. Well, I appreciate the way you address this issue. We definitely need more of that kind of attitude um, in the public dialogue today. So since you mentioned Twitter, um, you're quite active on the platform. And yeah. obviously, recently, there's been a lot going on at the company. You know, some high-profile people left the platform. Um, so what do you Not find? Not many, though, right? I mean, did a Not lot of high... It doesn't feel like a lot of high-profile people have actually left. Well, I think there was just more noise about the public breakups and, you know, podcasts recorded about that. But um, obviously, it still remains a very active platform. So what are you finding most useful about being on Twitter? Well, uh, first of all, the only high high profile person that I know well that has left Twitter is Jelani Cobb, um, who's the dean of, I think, the Columbia Journalism School. And I've known him for years and he's a very thoughtful guy. And he basically... He doesn't like Elon. He doesn't like the platform. He's like, that's it. I'm out. A lot of other people that said that they would be out if Elon bought it have found reasons not to be out, right? Uh, what, what have I noticed? I've noticed that there is uh, much more, I mean, definitely some advertisers have left, but I'm seeing much more promoted content, which interrupts the feed. Uh, it is not as useful and of course, it only says promoted underneath after you've read it through. So you've seen it and you're not realizing it's promoted. You think it might be useful and you see, oh, it's not really useful. And that happens a lot, that fake out, which makes Twitter more uh, less useful and engaging than when it's just like a feed and a stream of people that you're curating, that you're following. So there's that. Um, then, of course, the fact that you now have a whole bunch of people that have bought check marks for $8 a month who are identical in the way they appear to someone who is verified because they have some sort of public notability as either someone that has accomplished something that is recognized in society or as a celebrity or what have you. And of course, when you see the blue check mark, you've been trained um, to say, oh, that's something I should pay more attention to. But now you have to click that check mark to see if the person paid for it or if it's really notable and you don't want to spend that much time. So frequently you won't in any way you've already been addicted into saying that person's more important. And of course it turns out they're not necessarily um, they, some of those people have 10 followers and they're just trolls. So that also diminishes the experience. So what I have seen so far um, in the last, whatever it's been six weeks, eight weeks since Musk has taken it over, I have found the platform to be less useful. It's interesting. I haven't actually seen my number of followers change. There was there have been some studies that have uh, that have occurred. Uh, a whole bunch of right wing um, influencers and politicians have had significant increases um, in their followership since Musk has taken over. A lot of left wing have seen a lot of um, diminishing of their followers. Mine has stayed almost identical. Um, which is interesting. I don't think that means that people see me necessarily as a centrist straight down the line on everything. Um, I think it's um, just that I've seen a lot of churn. I've seen like, you know, a thousand people will join and then a thousand people will lose. But there's clearly been like a lot of uh, a lot of people, um, a lot of trolls and bots 
that are either coming on or being purged, probably both simultaneously. And I, I don't spend enough time on the platform to know what the hell is behind that. But those are my impressionistic views of, uh, of how it's changed. So let's talk a bit about Eurasia Group. One of the things that I find most interesting about your story is that you were able to find your passion, find a way to get paid for doing what you love and build a big business from it way before Substack enabled that for a lot of independent creators, journalists, et cetera, many decades before. So tell us a little bit about the story of how you created Eurasia Group. How you well, I mean, I think like anyone with a, a real passion or at least 90 plus percent, the passion wasn't about how to make money with it. The passion was it's something I really wanted to do. Um, and if it's something you really want to do, you will find a way to do it. So the first several years when I started Eurasia Group, I wasn't, I personally wasn't making any money. I was putting every dollar I made back into the firm. And the amount of money the firm was making was it was me, just me to start, was de minimis. But the idea, I started as a political scientist. I got my PhD at Stanford. I taught there for a couple of years. I was very, very young. And I really wanted to be an applied political scientist. I wanted to take poli sci and do something with it in the real world, right? It's like, I want to make love on a real train. I want to do something in the real world, right? And especially because as a kid that grew up in the projects, um, you know, the idea of being an academic was not going to be respected. Like I needed to have a real job and to go and do something. And uh, I was surprised that, uh, that PhDs from political science were not hired into real jobs. So it wasn't that I had an idea to start a company. It was more that I wanted to, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to apply my learning about the world. And in this point, particularly the former Soviet Union, which had literally just collapsed as I was doing my PhD. So suddenly 15 new countries that had just been created from thin air that were going to somehow integrate into a new global order. That's pretty fascinating. And I was right inside it. I mean, I knew personally, a lot of the first presidents of these new countries, because I knew them when they were dissidents, because I met them when I was doing my field work. Like I and even in some cases, like the, the first president of the Kyrgyz Republic, I invited him to come and do a talk at Columbia University. That's a pretty unique position for a kid to be in. So of course, I wanted to do something with that. And so I met, you know, a lot of people that were in uh, big companies that had policy orientation. And they were very interested in talking to me. They were very generous with their time, but they didn't have jobs for a political scientist, at least not to be a political scientist. So eventually, as I was building this network, I moved to New York and I was talking to them. I basically said, well, if you're not going to hire me, but you clearly like respect me and find me interesting and being very generous with me with your time, which matters a lot more to you than like a small amount of money. Well, if I started something, would you become a client? Whatever the hell that means. And they, they said, sure. And so that's how it started. It wasn't like there wasn't a business model. I didn't raise it. In fact, I never raised any money. So this company, which I mean, this year, this 2023, we're expecting 250 people. That's the, if we get all of our hires done, we'll have 250 folks at the end of the year from scratch, right? I mean, that there was never a plan to build that. There was never any money raised to do that. It's all been organic, but it's all been organic on the basis of my personal passion to understand the world, to build a platform that could understand the world as authentically as, as humanly possible, and then to bring that to people around the world, which, you know, you, you would think really exists, but doesn't. Like, I mean, like the, the organizations that do that are either like think tanks that really do focus on 
a, a very policy establishment, US-centric or Anglosphere-centric perspective on the world, which is very, very narrow, or they're lobbying organizations. They're like icebergs. The, the, you don't think they're lobbying organizations. You think they're telling you about the world, but actually underneath, they've got an agenda. And, and I, my agenda is really a global platform that can best understand the world. Like, I mean, you know, it's like Wikipedia, but in real life, you know? Um, and, and so that, that, I don't know, that, that feels like a life passion. Um, and uh, we're, not close to, we're not close to achieving what I think we can do in this space. Um, but it is exciting to have enough people and enough adults that know how to manage that we can drive a lot more impact um, in what we're doing right now. So why are you not achieving what you think you could? What's the biggest constraint? People. People. It's not competition. And it's not the global marketplace. It's that, you know, you have 250 people. And, you know, I mean, so, for example, we're finally opening in India. We're finally opening in the Gulf. There's plenty of business for us in those places. But you have to actually have a senior person that understands the organization that you can put in place in those places that is, you know, that, that, that is capable of delivering what the firm is and being the culture of the firm. And you have to do that without the wheels falling off and the rest of the firm. Like, this is an opportunity rich environment for what we do. And it is incumbent on us not to take 30 shots on goal in two minutes. But instead, I mean, because, you know, for me, a 250 person organization sounds super exciting, but in the context of global business, it's nothing. It's tiny. Our brand is vastly greater. Our influence is vastly greater than our capacity to implement and execute on that. I mean, if you think about the, the heads of state and the CEOs that we engage with that are in our network that value us, that care about us as an organization, we we don't remotely have the ability to actually execute on all of that. So the it, it's you. I don't want to. It's like drinking from a fire hose. One of the most overused expressions in the world. I try never to use expressions like that, but there is a bit of that. And and so you just have to be. I'm I'm someone who has. Uh, I keep lists of all of the great ideas we have. Sometimes I take things off the list. Mostly I don't. Mostly I keep them on the list, but recognize I can't do that yet. I can't do that now. I have to keep it in mind, but I have to wait until I have the capacity to implement on that. And that's that's the that's the fundamental constraint on growth. And what's your secret to attracting and retaining the best talent? Honesty, being who you are. People people are attracted to the brand because they they identify with who we are and what we do. Um, this is not an organization focused on maximizing profit or clicks or eyeballs. This is an organization that actually really does have a mission that matters for the world. We're not political activists at all, except in the most existential way. We're activists about wanting people to better understand the world and wanting to help change how they behave and what their missions are to get them more aligned with what the world is and where the world is going. But we, we, we're agnostic about what that, that is because we don't pretend to know it all. I think that's something that's very appealing to a lot of people and not just to attracting talent, but also to attracting human beings to who we are and what we do. That's, and for me, that's in a sense, the most exciting piece of it. So the alumni network is still very, very plugged in, which is super exciting. Um, and you know, if you think about what, well, why would these heads of state talk to us? Because it's not like, it's not like I used to work in government. I'm not like 
Tony Blair or, you know, uh, Condi Rice or any of those people. I'm just like this guy that started this from scratch. That grew, so why would they talk to us? And it's it turns out that what we do really is valued. It really does matter. And I, I think that that's the best reason for people to be attracted um, to it. It's it's certainly not because we're the we've got the best sales force or we have the best technology or we have the best management in the world. No, there are much bigger organizations than us that have those things. But um, in terms of what we actually do, yeah, I think we're pretty unique. Well, as someone who's been following your work for over a decade, um, I would definitely agree with that. And um, But there's a lot going on at Eurasia Group more broadly. So tell us about Eurasia Group Foundation. Um, what is it looking to accomplish and why is it important to you? You know, it's still small. It's, you know, it's all of like a couple million dollars a year that we're devoting, you know, to the outcomes right now. But it's it's not nothing um, com- compared to where we started. And it's really about trying to take the information and the capabilities, the knowledge that we have, the production values we have, and bring them to the people that otherwise wouldn't have exposure to it. When I was a kid, Schoolhouse Rock is part of how I learned about the Declaration of Independence and how a bill became a law. And junior achievement when I was in high school was how I learned about how America works and how companies work. Well, what are we doing to get information about how the world works to young people, particularly underprivileged young people, both in the United States and around the world? And the answer is there's nothing in my business that does that. And so EGF is really about that. And people in my firm always, they, they're excited by it. They like volunteering some of their time towards it. Um, EGF itself has hired, I guess we have about six full-time people now and a bunch of consultants, a bunch of fellows that are oriented towards that. And over time, maybe we can do more with it. So for me, um, if you ask like what on my, my philanthropic orientation, um, it would be really towards training and education. That's for me, the most exciting thing is engaging with young people and getting them turned on to this kind of thing and maybe creating more people that want to have the kind of life and aspirations that, that I, that I have and that I grew up with kind of improbably um, given my mother and given, you know, sort of what I was like when I was a kid that didn't have the kind of exposure to that stuff. I think that's that's kind of what we're trying to do. And in the last few minutes that we have left, um, what is something about you, your company or sector that you find people often misunderstand? That's funny. I, I think as I get better known, I think a lot of people presume that I, especially in a public policy type space, People presume that I'm some, in, I grew up some incredibly wealthy, connected white kid, and they got the white kid right. Uh, but, you know, I grew up with absolutely nothing. I will say, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that offends me about Trump is how he tried to create this message of he built it himself when his he inherited all this money and started you know his firm because his dad was rich and incredibly well connected and to the extent that i have a fundamental systemic bias in my company it's against people who clearly came from network and money because i just don't think they work all that hard like they have to convince me that they're willing to try harder since it all came so much easier to them than it came to me most of the things I tried failed and the network I built, I had to build literally from nothing. 
Uh, now, I was massively, massively advantaged by being born in the United States as a white male. I get that. But still, at least I grew up working class, single mom, no high school education and in the projects. And I, I think that is something that almost nobody that knows my public persona now is aware of. Not that I necessarily care that much, but I do think because almost everyone in the policy space uh, comes from people that are networked and wealthier, I think it's really valuable. I think part of the reason why our organization is so different is because I don't have that background and I'm more willing to call bullshit when I see things that feel like groupthink that come from that background. So maybe that's that's the thing that's most different or that people most misunderstand. But I, I will say, I don't think that that happens that much and with intentionality. I think it's a presumption. But most people that follow me and know me, my personality, my public personality and my private personality are not very different. In fact, I've done an awful lot to organize my life in ways to ensure that that can be true. I find uh, having to pretend to be something that you're not actually stressful. And you and I talked about this earlier in the conversation a bit when we talked about Silicon Valley versus Washington versus Wall Street. I've never been oriented to taking any of those jobs in part because it would be stressful for me to have to align my, my person with a bigger organization that wants me to do something that I don't want to do. So the fact that I get to own my organization and construct myself in a way that feels authentic to me, not only makes me happier as a human being, but I think it comes through to people. And as a consequence, I don't think that, I think most people that get to know me, even ephemerally, don't, don't misjudge me that badly. And that's, and that's nice because I don't, it's just a, it's a lot of work to try to fake it. You know, I mean, it's just, it is, it's not, you don't want to go home like that. Like I, even a little thing, like this is actually the way that I want to dress today. I, I did not dress differently than if I had nothing going on today, but staying in my house and walking my dog, I would want to dress basically like this. And that makes me happy. That's a small thing, but that makes me happy. And I think the more people that can do that kind of thing at scale we'll have a much better society. Um, that, that would be a good place to be. Couldn't agree more. And let's just finish um, on, on a nice note heading into the holiday season. What's your favorite winter holiday tradition? Oh, probably um, tree trimming. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, my good friend, Carl Bildt, the former prime minister of Sweden, was uh, here in New York a couple of years ago and I, I love to get the tree up and then, but I don't want to trim it because trimming is a lot of work. I mean, there's, you know, big tree, a lot of ornaments. So, you know, to trim it, you get your friends to come over, you have a little party and part of like, you're putting on the spread, but they're all trimming it together. And Carl Bolt had never been to a tree trimming party before. He guy's like six, one or six, two. So I explain it to him. I'm like, no, you're going to work. Okay. So I give him like one of my favorite ornaments, which he proceeds to try to put on the tree. It drops and it breaks. One of my favorite ornaments. Like I really, it wasn't expensive, but I really <laughs> like this ornament. Bam. And I'm like, God damn it, Carl. But that's okay. He didn't further. I made him put another 30 ornaments on and he was fine with the rest of them. He picked, he picked it up. I, the, the lesson to me 
is do not start with the great ornament. Like get, let people work up to that, especially when they're already drinking. That's, but that is my favorite. That's my favorite part of the holiday. Well, it sounds great. Um, Ian, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for all your insights and, um, and hopefully we'll have many more of these conversations. My pleasure, Olga. Thanks so much.